This morning, I'm going to invite you to step onto a path with me that I've been walking with God on a journey through the book of Nehemiah. God has been teaching me, stirring within me over the past weeks, actually, that I need to be living my life by his design and not by default, which I normally tend to gravitate toward. I need to live my life by design, which means that I'm living my life on that which matters most, as opposed to living by default where I end up living by the demands of my schedule or distraction, and I end up living for that which matters the least. And the way that I'm going to, we're going to unpack the scriptures today is, is I'm going to ask you four hard but simple questions that will reveal spiritual health. Questions are, I believe, invaluable to revealing truth. I have two addictions. One is to bubblegum, and the other is to school supplies. Now, this is serious because just the other day, no kidding, I bought two things of bubble tape and had chewed them all in one day. I am an addict. And school supplies, I don't know if you watched the movie, You Got Mail, but one of my favorite quotes in there is when Tom Hanks, when he's typing an email and he says it to this mystery girl, he says, don't you just love New York in the fall? It makes me want to buy school supplies. I would send you a bouquet of newly sharpened pencils if I knew your name and address. Do not send me a bouquet of flowers. To me, that is the waste of money. My husband knows this. You really want to win my heart, send me a basket of Sharpies or post-it notes, which by the way, the post-it notes are a mystery. We don't know where they came from. Those are not from me, okay? Um, yeah, you're probably going, what is, this? what is this here for? That's not because I have an addiction to school supplies. But So send me a basket of Sharpies and, and school supplies and crisp notebooks, and we will be BFF for now and forever, okay? But apparently this has been something that has been a part of my in t- my heart, my entire life. When I was at the age of seven, I remember going to the grocery store on Thursdays when my mom picked me up after her work and we got to school. We would go to the grocery store every Thursday. And I would go at the age of seven and I would watch these unintelligent children at the front of the store trying to shake the bubble gum machine to get the one little single, you know, hopefully bubble gum that would come out of the little dispense. But what they didn't know was that all you had to do was go to the checkout line and on the bottom shelf, there was a box of then what was two cent bubble gum. And if you just acted like you were tying your shoe, you could reach down in the box, get some and put it into your pocket. (laughs) Oh, don't act like you had no sin problems when you were little. (laughs) And I did the same thing with school supplies. I would go down the school supply and like brand new boxes of crayons that had never been used or the little triangular or prism type shape eraser that you could fit on the end of a brand new pencil. Like I would take those and glue, and scotch tape, and a few other items too. And I had gone to my grandparents' house for a week in the summer, and when I came home, I walked into my freshly cleaned room that my mom had gone into every crevice and every corner, and sitting on the nightstand was a neat little pile of all the trinkets and items that I had stolen. And so some questions came to reveal the truth. 
simple but hard questions. The first one being, where did these come from? To which I'm sure I gave a very creative story, but my parents did not buy it. Which then meant there was another question. Did you steal these? At that point, the tears start streaming. The hyperventilation starts coming. You know what it is, parents, when your kids start crying, they're like, (laughs) and they catch their breath. You know what it is? And you just want to look at them like, stop it, right? (laughs) And so I'm doing that. And then another question comes, it's like, do you know what happens to people who steal? And I'm trying to answer the tears under my breath. (laughs) They go to jail. And my dad says, let's go. And we get into the car and I'm thinking I'm going to jail or hell. And to me, they were the same. I don't know how long it took to get to the grocery store. It was probably a three minute drive, but to me, it felt like three days. And all I'm saying is, dad, please don't take me to jail. Daddy, please don't take me to jail. Daddy, please don't take me to jail. And I think he was sitting there thinking, I'm just taking you to go apologize to the store owner. But if you want to think you're going to jail, I'm going to let you think that all the way through the car ride. So we get there. And I apologize to the storekeeper and I've over my addiction, just so you know, I'm not a kleptomaniac anymore. But questions reveal honest answers. Questions are meant to hold us accountable. And I wanna ask us four questions as we dive in to the book of Nehemiah that are going to demand. And the thing is, is when we ask questions, you can choose not to answer them, but to choose not to answer them is to really just to be oblivious to any outcome that could be. Not that there's not an outcome or reality that exists. It's just that we don't want to own the reality that exists. So if you want to turn to the book of Nehemiah, you'll find it in the middle of the Old Testament. We'll be there in just a minute. And uh, we're actually going to look at nine chapters today. I heard somebody whistle. (laughs) Don't worry. There's only 253 verses, okay? So if we get started now, we'll be good. Um, But truly, there are times that we open up the word of God and we bite off a portion of scripture and we let it melt into our mouth and we savor the truth that is there. But there are other times that we need to pull up a chair to the table of an entire narrative to hang out there, to eat the eight course meal that is in front of us. And that's what we're going to do. We're not going to read all the verses. We are going to do kind of a high fly survey over all of these passages. And often when we come to the Old Testament, we approach it like we do a child's bedtime story, like the three little pigs or a tortoise and the hare. And uh, we kind of have this kind of mindset of what's the moral of the story or what's the point of the story. Let me just kind of clear this up immediately. Everything within the Old Testament is a story about God's name being made known in all the earth. About him choosing and redeeming a people for his glory and for his salvation. The point of the Old Testament is to point us to Jesus. Jesus even said this to the Pharisees in the book of John chapter 5. He's speaking to them, to the religious leaders, and he says, you study the scriptures. Well, what were the scriptures? The scriptures are not the New Testament because the New Testament had not yet been written. 
The scriptures were the Old Testament, specifically the book of the law, a portion of the Old Testament, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were studying it. And Jesus says this. He says, you study the scriptures, the book of the law, the Old Testament, and they testify about me. The big picture, the point of the Old Testament is to point us to Jesus. So you'll notice if you've turned in your Bible to the book of Nehemiah, that, or if you're looking at table contents on your phone or something, that it's really in the middle of the Old Testament. And that's because the Old Testament has been arranged in categories. So you've got law and history and poetry and prophecy. But if we were to take all of the books out of the Old Testament and we were to line them up in chronological historical order, Nehemiah would be at the end. And so what we're going today is we're going to be looking into like the end as the curtain is closing on Act 1. For a 400-year intermission where God is silent, not speaking to his people before the curtain then opens on act two and Jesus is born. That's the text that we're looking at today. And so we're going to jump in to the book of Nehemiah. We're not going to read every verse, but we are going to read the entire passage of chapter one. So let's jump in and begin. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped and survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. Now stop for a minute, because I want to give us some handles, because I don't want us to get lost in the history and the geography and the Hebrew names here. But here's what is going on. Several hundred years ago, Israel had been one nation. They were divided. Israel went to the north, Judah went to the south. Jerusalem is in the south. After they divided, the Assyrians came in and conquered the north. After then, the Babylonians came in and conquered them. After then, the Persians came in and conquered them. So they're kind of losing here. And the people of Israel are scattered everywhere. So Nehemiah has been taken captive. He's grown up in Susa. He's never even been to Jerusalem, this place that he's got some deep concern for. So he's in Jerusalem. He has lived his life there. The people of Israel are scattered everywhere. So let's pick back up again. I'm going to repeat a few of these verses here. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, about 100 years before this right here, just a small remnant of Jews were allowed to go back to Jerusalem to build a temple. But they were vulnerable. The walls were down. They were penetrable. The enemy could come in and persecute and plunder and destroy them. And Nehemiah has a deep concern because it's in ruin and rubble and waste. And this is his reaction in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said... O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins 
with the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. And then he's going to quote scripture back to God. He says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying that if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh Lord, let your ear Be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. Here's the first question that I want to ask you. And and in, in some ways I intend to even ask it to us collectively as a church. What are you doing Regarding the will of God. What are we doing collectively as a church regarding the will of God? Well, you might be thinking, okay, let's look. What did Nehemiah do? As if we're looking to see to Nehemiah, like what did Nehemiah do for the will of God? And, and we will be looking at these passages, but here's the thing is, is as we're reading the book of Nehemiah, what we're talking about today is not about Nehemiah. Now I love to go, and read about people who've written commentary on the book of Nehemiah. And certainly in the book of Nehemiah, there's leadership lessons and vision lessons and entrepreneurship type lessons. And and you can learn things about prayer and leadership and warfare and character and envisioning and teaming and strategy. But if we're not careful when we do that, We will only hang on to the lessons that make us live our life a little bit better instead of living our life as part of something bigger. I want you to see that while we're looking at Nehemiah, we're also looking at this bigger picture of what's going on. So let's dive in just a little bit. What is Nehemiah doing? Nehemiah asked a burning question out of a deep concern that he had regarding a people that lived a thousand miles away from him. So it's not a random question. We could tell by his emotional reaction to weep and to mourn by his spiritual reaction to pray and fast and fast and pray night and day and day and night, crying out to God on the behalf of a people that he was compelled by God to have a concern and a deep burden for. He was obviously broken and concerned about a broken people who are living in a broken place. What are we doing regarding the will of God? So you have to ask, what is, what is the will of God? You don't know what the will of God is? I think Nehemiah knew what it was when, when he's quoting scripture back to God and he gets to the end of verse 10 and there's just one phrase in there. He says, God, he's quoting God to make my name dwell there. That's the will of God. God's will was to make his name dwell there among a redeemed people for his glory to be known there. What was God's will then? 
It was to make a name for himself among redeemed people where his glory may dwell. What is God's will today? It's to make a name for himself among a redeemed people where his glory may dwell. Nehemiah was compelled and concerned for a people who lived in a place where God's name and glory did not dwell. You know, we go on mission trips quite often and we come back, we send them out, we come back so often that sometimes I wonder if, if like we're missing sometimes the point of what it is that we're doing. We come back and so we see people's pictures on Facebook or Instagram. And I was going through my computer last night and it came across a, a couple of photos. I brought them with me today. There was one of a friend of mine named Noel. And we had gone into this village and Noel loved to love on all the little kids. And there is nothing better than going into a village and there's African kids just everywhere. And they'll come out and play and they want to sit in your lap and you can hug on them. Sometimes they're afraid of the white person. They think you're a ghost. They might run out screaming. But other than that, they're really a lot of fun to be with. And so Noel, Noel was great, just loving on the kids. And we were telling stories and sharing the gospel and so forth. But I came back and I was sharing these photos. And there was somebody who made a comment. They said, oh, I want to go to Africa with Grace Point and love on one of the little orphan kids. And I thought, that's good. But that's not the point. To go over there and get a bunch of little kids and take our selfie and post it on our Instagram. And I went overseas and, and isn't this great? And it was a lot of fun and I had a great adventure and I got to meet some neat people. And oh, by the way, God's name doesn't dwell there. And the reality is that this kid right here is going to grow up just like the generation before him and the generation before him and the generation before him living in a village where they teach to offer sacrifices to evil spirits to keep them away. To go through tradition and rituals. To put on little charms to keep the evil spirits away. Or if that's not good enough for you, then go down here to, to the Islamic, the, the Muslim leader. Because you've got two choices here. Because that's all they know. And that's the reality of this photo. Not that he's just an impoverished you know, kid in Africa who needs to be loved on. Because he lives in a location where God's name does not dwell. We're not compelled by little African kids who are poor. We're compelled because they live in a place where God's name is not. We were always talking about Africa. We went to India as well. And I remember going with a team of women, Jen Radinsky, Lindsay Ferguson was there. And we went into the red light district and a group of kids had gotten together and they were rowdy and rambunctious and they were annoyingly adorable. And we sang songs and we played games and we taught them stories for maybe a couple hours. And we did an arts and crafts type thing. And Lindsay taught this little kid how to play thumb wars. It's like one of my favorite photos, just because you can just see they're both having so much fun. And yet again, that's not the point. The point is that this little boy is being prepped to be a pimp. And unless something changes in his life and in the place where he lives, he's going to remain in bondage and he's going to remain trapped doing this among people who are trapped and being trafficked. Unless something changes, unless God's name dwells there. You want to know what God's will is? God's will is for his name to dwell among a redeemed people. 
That is the point. And that's the point of what's taking place here. It's not to build a wall. That's really cool. That's not the point of the story. What in God's name are you doing for his glory? Which sounds kind of blasphemous a little bit to say it like that. Because we throw around phrases like, what the hell? Or what in God's name? And the reality is that if they don't know God's name, they're going to hell. So what in his name are you doing for his glory? And you may say, well, missions is not my thing. And if I could just be blunt with you, I might make you mad, but only speak about once every six months. So hopefully you'll get over it by the next time. Um, Yes, missions is your thing. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, a part of the church of God, we have a message of Jesus Christ that we have been sent with. So you've got a choice. You're either going to go or you're going to stay. So you're going to go short term or you're going to go long term. You're going to relocate your family. You're going to relocate your profession, whatever it might look like. You're going to go. But if you're not going to go, then you're going to stay. And when you stay, what are you doing for his name and for his glory? Are you giving generously so that others may be sent to go? Are we sending well those that are being sent and shepherding them as they're living their life in a difficult place? Are we praying boldly? For God to open doors so the mystery of the gospel could be shared. How are we doing with the will of God? And what are you doing regarding the will of God? Number two, here's a second question to ask. What are you doing regarding the work of God? God, in his sovereignty, can do all things. He is in control. That with his will comes work because in his sovereignty, he has designed it and desired for human activity to carry out his plan and his purposes. If we are compelled by a bigger picture, then first we got to do what Nehemiah did. We got to fuel it and we got to feed it with prayer and fasting and crying out to God. And quite honestly, these things are often anemic in my life. But one of two things will begin to happen, and I've done them both. If, when we're compelled by something of God, that we're not feeding it and fueling it with prayer and fasting, either one, we will move forward in our own power, we will begin to veer off working for our own name and for our own glory, or two, we will procrastinate it, and eventually the vision will dissipate and dissolve and eventually disappear. And we begin thinking things like, yeah, I remember one day I was going to do, you know, fill in the blank for God. We begin to live in this fantasy land of kind of some kind of someday theology that that someday never actually arrives. Participating in God's mission can look as creative as God is. I love it that Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king because it's completely illogical and seemingly impossible that this would be the guy a thousand miles away who would generate a movement of God. But he didn't just stay praying on the sidelines. Oh, God changed something and waiting for God. He anted up. He had guts and he had grit and he got into the game by leveraging his position as a cupbearer. And we're not going to read through all of chapter two at all. But here's what happened in a nutshell. 
Nehemiah is before the king. His disposition on his face is sad. The, the king's like, what up, Nehemiah? And, and Nehemiah's like, well, why wouldn't you know, I'd be sad? Because the people in my land, you know, they're in ruins. The, my father's grave, the people, my grandfather's, has completely been destroyed. And the king says, well, what do you want me to do? And so here's Nehemiah, who it says in chapter 2 that he's terrified and greatly afraid. So here's, you know, like a life principle for you. Mike is always giving us life principles. Here's a life principle for you. You ever have an opportunity to go for a, before a pagan king, go big or go home. Nehemiah goes big and he respectfully and audaciously makes requests before the king. And he says, um, I'm a slave, but I need time off. That's the first request. King's like, check. Okay, here we go. All right, number two. I need papers stamped with your authority so that I can pass through the land. Check. Number three. Okay, here we go. I need timber, like the best timber from the king's forest because we're going to build a fortress around the temple where we're worshiping God and, and not your gods. And we're going to build walls around the city, you know, so that you guys can't come in and plunder and destroy us. And oh, by the way, I need timber for my house as well. And I love this thread that begins in verse eight and Nehemiah's thinking toward what God is doing in the work that he's doing to fulfill the will of God. In verse eight, it says this, and the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. The work of God is accomplished by the grace of God. When things seem illogical or impossible, but when God's people move forward in obedience because they are compelled and called to do what God has led them to do, his grace is sufficient. And then his people are satisfied in him. Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem. I don't know how long it took him to get there. I don't know how he got there by camel, foot, donkey, Uber. I don't know, but he's there. And when he gets there, he goes and he surveys the wall. And he doesn't tell anybody what he's doing. He's looking at the places that have been destroyed. He goes up at the narrow places where like donkeys and animals can't even get to. And he's just taking it all in. And it says this in verse 12. Listen to the position of his heart. I told no one what God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem. Finally, when he's got this vision and, and I think he's been leaning and listening to God and he kind of understands what's going on here in verse 18. He gathers all the people now and it says this. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. We do the work we do for God because God puts it on our heart to do for him. And I believe that when the people heard Nehemiah casting this vision, they weren't necessarily following a man who was able to articulate something really fancy and stir them up. I think they were following a movement because they saw Nehemiah and heard Nehemiah saying, look, God has given us this to do. The work of God is accomplished by all the people of God. It said at the end of verse 18, let's rise up and build. They were ready to jump into this crazy audacious task. Now in chapter three, I absolutely love it. And you're absolutely going to hate it. So there's 32 verses here. And I'm only going to read two. So you're welcome. All right. But this is what it sounds like. Because what it is in chapter three is it's like a Hebrew Excel spreadsheet of everybody who was working to rebuild the wall and the place in which they were doing it. 
That's what chapter three is. And, and here's what it kind of sounds like. So it, like in verse eight, uh, in matter of fact, you could pick any verse in here. So next to them, Uziel, the son of Horariah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. So skip down to verse 12. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Holahesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. And it continues on people after people and the position that Nehemiah has stationed them doing their work for God because the work of God requires all the people of God. Except for a few. If you look at verse five, it says that there were, there was a group that wouldn't stoop to serve the Lord. The work of God is not a one man mission. If you're following Mike McDaniel, the mission will die. But if you're following a movement of God, it will outlive him. It will outlive you. The mission of God is not a one-man mission. It's every person leveraging their position and their place and their paycheck to be part of the mission and the movement of God. The work of God is also accomplished when the people of God focus. And here's what happens because I know reality. I am the same way. I get compelled by something of God. I start putting my hands to the hard work and then the enemy comes in and I'm either absolutely discouraged, which is usually the case, or I'm absolutely distracted, one of the two. And both began to happen here in chapter four. And so here's the thing is, is like I'm flying through, like we're in chapter four, we're gonna fly all the way into the, to, to, to chapter nine. And I hope the reality is this, is why we're just kind of like flying over, like you're like enticed, like I'm just dangling a little carrot. Like I wanna get into the word of God. I wanna understand it and chew it. I wanna know more those passages that she didn't read. But beginning in, Chapter four, what begins to happen are two, bu- two bullies are up on the scene, Sam Ballot and Tobiah. It's kind of like a playground bullying fest going on. And they, the enemy is attempting to discourage the workers of God by name calling. And what are these feeble Jews doing? Or casting doubt and questioning this, this thing, saying things like this. Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they really finish in a day? I mean, who even said they were going to finish in a day to begin with? And then Tobiah, you know, he jumps in with his jeering and rude comments. He said, yeah, what they're building, if a fox goes on it, it will just crumble under the fox's weight. Even though the wall they were building was eight feet thick. The enemy has a way of exaggerating in a way to discourage us and think, yeah, maybe we can't do this work of God. And that began to take place in verse 10. The strength of of those who were bearing the burdens began to fail. And they began to say, there's too much rubble. By ourselves, we're not able to rebuild the wall. Nehemiah's like, wait, we started a good work here. So he strategically puts them back in their places and he gives them swords and he gives them spears and he tells them to get ready to fight. And half the people would build during part of the time and the other people would stand guard and no one went without a rock or a sword in their hand at any time in the day. So the enemy couldn't discourage them. They were back at work in verse 15. It says, when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. So the enemy tries a different route. The enemy attempts to derail the work this time. When the enemy heard that the wall had been built, that there was no breach in it, they begin to send letters to Nehemiah, 
Nehemiah throws these words out. I love this verse. It has stuck with me as I am assessing what is it that I keep scrambling toward and my schedule is dictating to me. And it says that Nehemiah sent messages to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot stop to come down to you. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Nehemiah knew and was focused on what it was that God had called them to do and he would not be distracted. We cannot stop. We cannot quit. We have to keep moving. We have to keep going. We have to keep giving. Yes, it may be hard. Yes, it may be tough. Yes, there are problems. Yes, there are pain. I have a bracelet that has an inscription on it, just this phrase. It says, sufficiently daring. And I had a friend that gave it to me, but the phrase I took from a quote in a book called Spiritual Leadership by Oswald Sanders. And he's interviewing a guy at the end of his life. At the end of this man's life, Oswald is asking him a question. He said, what in your life do you regret? And the man said, the only thing that I regret are moments when I had lived insufficiently daring. And I found myself thinking, oh, dear God, let me live. Daring to do those things that even make me afraid. Let me move forward with faith. Chapter six, the wall is built in verse 15. In 52 days, the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when our enemies heard it, All the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. And here's why. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. The other nations knew these people could not have done that. What are you doing for the will of God? What are you doing for the work of God? That when other people look in at your life, they're like, that is God at work. Here's the third question. What are you doing regarding the word of God? In our front yard in Zambia, there was a pawpaw tree and I looked out one day or I walked out the door and there was a little girl named Ruthie. She was climbing the pawpaw tree and I shouted up at Ruthie. I said, Ruthie, that fruit is not ready to eat yet. And she yelled down at me, yes, but I'm hungry. The Israelites, this was not their normal to be in the word of God, to worship God. They had been spiritually malnourished. They were theologically anemic. And they have Ezra, the priest, bring out the word of God to be read in assembly of all the people. They prepare for it by building a platform, a stage, probably something kind of like this, so that Ezra can stand up on it and read so that everybody can hear and everybody can understand. And when he would read the scripture, the people would begin to say, amen, amen. And they would lift their hands and some would fall on their face on the ground to worship God. Look at verse three of chapter eight. It says this, and he read from it, from the word of God, facing the square before the water gate from early in the morning until midday. You think nine chapters in 30 minutes is bad. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand and all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. They were inhaling the scriptures. What are you doing with the word of God? I could probably guess you're doing one of two things. Either one, you're considering it 
which means that you think it's a really good idea to spend time in the word. Kind of like, yeah, nod head, but you have no intentional plan of doing it. You think it's important for your communitas group to be in the word of God. And we kind of, yeah, we all kind of agree, but don't really do anything about it. And still we just kind of fellowship instead with one another, which is good. But we're not hungry for the word of God. I almost wasn't even going to read verse seven for two reasons. One, because I'm afraid I'm going to spit on the front row of people sitting out here as I try to pronounce all the names. So sorry ahead of time, but Two, because I was afraid you might just find it incredibly boring. But as I was looking at it and I'm reading through these names and what they did, I don't even know who these people are. But for some reason, Nehemiah felt compelled that it was important that, that it was written down. So in verse 7, in chapter 8, it says, Also, Jeshua and Bani and Sherebiah and Jamin and Akub and Shebathiah and Hodiah and Masai and Kalita and Azariah and Josabad and Hanan and Pelea and the Levites. Look at what they did. They helped the people to understand the law. And while the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave it sense so that the people of God understood the reading. They were investigating the scripture and they were instructing others around them concerning the word of God. And there's a question I get asked whenever I'm not around people who are from Grace Point Church, whether it's in Northwest Arkansas or I travel somewhere for work and they know that I'm a pastor's wife or they know that we plan in Grace Point Church. And this is the question they ask, how is your church? I like people say, how are you, how's your family? How's your church? That's always the question. And normally I just respond, oh, it's good. God's moving, doing great things. People are amazing. We love our church. That's usually my response. But lately I've tagged on a phrase. People are great. We love our church. God is moving in ways, but there's something that's got to shift. I feel like we're missing the word of God, like compelled by it, knowing it in the sense that it's not just knowledge, but it's so contagious that we're discipling one another. But I know that discipleship is completely becoming absent and shallow. My heart is burdened so much so that I have to ask myself first, Lori McDaniel, what are you doing concerning the word of God? So here's the fourth question. What are you doing regarding the worth of God? Which kind of takes us back almost full circle. They're still in the word of God. When, when they opened the word of God, immediately the people responded by mourning and weeping and crying. And even I said, no, this is a time of celebration. So then they had a time of celebrating and then they get back in the word of God again. And this time they're like reading for a quarter of the day. And then another quarter of the day, they're confessing. You can see it in chapter nine. And then in verse six, or excuse me, in yeah, chapter nine, verse six, they begin to pray the Old Testament back to God. Beginning in, in verse six and all the way through to the end of the chapter, it is the fullest summary. It's like the cliff note versions of the Old Testament in the Old Testament. And they're praying it back to him. I mean, look at the sections here. We won't read them all, but 
Verse six, you put creation right there. You are the Lord, you alone, you've made the heaven, the heaven of the heavens and all their hosts and the earth and all that's in them, the seas and all that are in them and you preserve them all and the host of the heavens worships you. Next section's on Abraham, the covenant. You're the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of her, the Chaldeans. You gave him the name Abraham and you found his heart faithful before you and you made him the covenant to give to his offspring in the land. Next is a section on Exodus and you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of this land for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day and it continues right on and i believe all of a sudden like the people are getting it like we're reading about ourselves we're reading about our family we're reading about our history this makes sense we today are a part of the bigger picture and the bigger plan of what god has been doing for his name and for his glory and for his purpose At the end of verse 10 in chapter 9. It says, you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. What day? That day. The day they were in. Like they recognized that there was something that mattered most. And it was God's name. And it had been God's name throughout all time in history. And it was now his name today. David Platt, who's the president of the company that I work for, wrote the book Radical. You may be familiar with him. You may not. But he made a statement that I heard him say it and wrote it down. He said, we are prone to focus most on that which matters least eternally. We are prone to focus most on that which matters least. And we are prone to focus the least on that which matters the most God's name, his worth, his will, his work, his word. What are we doing regarding these things? God's sovereignty in his design and desire has designed for human activity, participate in his plan and in his purpose. of Making his name dwell in places where it has not. What are we doing? 